Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, make a way to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 24 here in a moment. We are going to be wrapping up what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, found in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 5 through 7 uh, in our ongoing series of Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And um, With our passage this morning, uh, we're going to have to have a little refresher. We actually began our journey through the Sermon on the Mount back in August of 2021, and we're just now coming to the end of it. And so I'd like for you, if you wouldn't mind, just turn a page or two back to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to walk through it because it's really going to help us understand what Jesus is teaching us here in our passage beginning in verse 24 of chapter 7. Uh, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus sees the crowds and he goes up onto a mountain or a high hill and his disciples come and sit by him. And from there, beginning in verse 2 and running through verse 12, Jesus begins to define what is the blessed life. Now, the blessed life is one that is in a right relationship with God, it, and it overflows or outflows onto the people that God has placed in our life. And Jesus' definition of the blessed life would have been countercultural to his day as much as it is to our day. It would be something, if you read through 2 through verses 2 through 12, you would see that's not really what we would think would be a blessed life. We would have a different definition. For example, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful. And it just kind of goes against what we may think of, oh, that's, that's blessed. Um, from there, Jesus begins in verse 13 of chapter 5 and tells us why we should live such a life because we are called to be the light and salt of the earth. And so for in order us to do this, Jesus says that I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, which is a summary of what we call all of the Old Testament. And then he begins to turn his attention to the law in verse 21 of chapter 5. He, and he begins to accurately define what God said when he said what he said. And so Jesus begins teaching us that our relationship with God is actually how we treat people is, is, is the evidence of our relationship with God is, is he begins talking about how we respond to people, how we look at people, how we feel about people, how we treat people, what we say about people, and ultimately how we love them is to be a reflection of our relationship with God. Now jump with me into chapter 6 where Jesus turns his attention to three spiritual disciplines or practices of righteousness that we are to be giving people, we are to be a praying people, we are to be a fasting people. And Jesus wants to make sure that as we do these things, that we do them in the right way or the appropriate way that is honoring to God and not seeking the applause of men. The final parts of chapter 6 and into the beginning of chapter 7 Jesus delivers three negative commands, not to hoard earthly treasures, not to worry about earthly possessions, and not to judge through an earthly perspective. And because we're all tempted to do these things, Jesus says instead of hoarding and worrying and judging, we should then turn to God and we should pray and we should seek and we should knock knowing our God is a God of good gifts. And that good gifts means God wants to give us things that are beneficial, Things that are advantageous for our life. In verse 12 of chapter 7, Jesus then gives us the reason to this standard of living. That we're called not to treat people how they treat us, but we're called to treat people how we want them to treat us. And this brings us to the final statements in chapter 7 where Jesus delivers four warnings, three of which we looked at last week. That we are to live in such a life that is entering through the narrow gate, which is a hard way to live. That we are to be aware that there are false prophets out there and we are to be able to recognize them by their fruit. 
And we are to make sure that we aren't just doing good things in life. Even though the Sermon on the Mount does call us to do good things, but we are to do good things because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount reminds me of a coach that is really trying to draw the very best out of their players, wanting them to be the very best that they can possibly be. Chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew are meant to stretch us. They're meant to challenge us spiritually. They're meant to help us grow relationally with God and with man. And if we were to reread the sermon and then place it side by side with the culture to which we live in, we would see that it is countercultural because it is calling us to a higher standard of living. For this reason, we might read through these chapters and be tempted like we might be in other parts of Scripture to brush it off. And that's why we walk through this, because Jesus, as he wraps up this sermon, is telling us that everything that we've just read, everything we've just heard, that we need to take heed to not just his teachings here, but to all of his teachings and to all of the Word of God. And so now we begin in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray before we get into this. Father, we come before you and we submit to your authority. You are God, our creator. You are our savior. You are our intercessor, our advocate, and our helper. So, Lord, I pray that you just guide us through your word. Let your spirit just invade our hearts and our minds. Give us a heart and a mind that is willing not only just to hear you, but to apply what you're laying before us. Lord, I pray that you alone be glorified. It's not about me. It's not about who's leading worship, Lord. It is about you. You sit on your throne and you are being praised and adorned with praise right now. We thank you so much. Your word says that we are now in your presence, or better yet, you're in our presence. That we are with you because we're two or more are gathered in your name. You're here. So, Father, let us come before you as your servants and as your children and be willing to apply what your word is telling us here this morning, no matter how difficult or hard it can be. I ask you to forgive us where we have failed you, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray that your kingdom and will will be done in this place and in it alone. Father, I pray all his name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jumping back to verse 24, the word everyone could also be read as anyone. As Jesus has done numerous times in chapters 5 through 7, he's letting us know once again there are only two types of people in this world. And for this particular session, there is a wise and a foolish type of person. The Greek word for wise is the word we get prudent from in the English. It means to have a wise judgment when it comes to a course of action. The Greek word for foolish is the word moros. And you can probably guess what word we get from that, moron. To be a moron is to be someone who lacks judgment when it comes to a course of action. We might refer to them as an idiot. 
someone who's stupid, someone who's dim-witted, or someone who's a fool. The purpose of Jesus teaching the Word of God is to steer God's people from being foolish. And here in this passage, Jesus is telling us how we can avoid such a foolish lifestyle. One thing we learn is Jesus requires action. Notice something with me in that both the wise and the foolish have been given the same opportunity when it comes to Jesus. Just as we are gathered here today, we are all going to be given the same opportunity. You're going to hear the same sermon, and you have the same opportunity to respond to what God is laying before us. Both the wise and the foolish hear Jesus' words, but the difference is in the response. The word for hear means that both types of individuals understood the message, understood the teaching that was being presented before them. They understood the course of action that they were to do in response to it, but only the wise is the one who's doing what is being said. The word does means the wise puts God's word into practice. They adhere to it. They live it out. They accomplish the teachings and the word of God. They produce the teachings of Christ and the relationships with people. They aren't like the false prophets that Jesus spoke of in verses 15 through 20, that they appear to be doing something they are not. They aren't like the hypocrites Jesus spoke of in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, and that they're just putting on a show for other people. Wise people are wise because they're authentic. And their authenticity comes from the guidance of the Almighty. Jesus says earlier in this chapter, in verse 20, that you will recognize them by their fruit. So he is telling us people will recognize our genuineness, our authenticity, by our actions, and whether or not they measure up to the Word of God. In the book of James, which is considered a proverbial or wisdom book of the New Testament, we're told something very very similar there. It says, Be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And what we're being told is how we respond to Jesus. How we respond to the Word of God is actually the revelation or the revealing of our faith and trust in God. As God's people, we cannot just read His Word and be in awe or astonished like the crowds were at the end of Jesus' teaching. As God's people, we can't fall into the temptation that Jesus is a great teacher. He's a great moral leader. He did a lot of great things, and He lived a great life. Here's the thing. The Word of God doesn't allow us just to go to that place. In C.S. Lewis's classical Christian book called Mere Christianity, he points out, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. So we can shut him up for a fool, we can spit at him, and we can kill him as a demon, or we can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, because he has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Throughout this sermon, Jesus has been calling us to a particular course of action in living And now he drives home the reason why. How we respond to Jesus and his word will impact our life in a positive way or a negative way. This not only speaks of our day-to-day living, but our eternal living. 
So if you're here today and you believe the words of Jesus Christ, you believe the identity of Christ as the Son of the living God, you believe what Jesus Christ did in dying for the sins of the world and rising again, but you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a moros. That's not my words, that's Jesus' words. If you're here today, or we're here today, and we've accepted Christ, but we're not adhering and practicing and trusting and producing the words of Christ in our life, and Jesus says, we're a moros. Again, his words. Why is this so pivotal? Because Jesus reminds us of storms. Again, there are only two types of people in this little parable here. Two types of individuals on this planet. Those who hear the word of God and do them, and those who hear the word of God and don't. We may want to subtitle certain groups. We want to call them atheists or agnostics or Buddhists or Muslims or Hindus or Scientologists or Jehovah Witness or Mormons, Wiccans, whatever title we want to give them. But it all comes down to what do we do with the word of God? How do we respond to it? Do you notice that both the wise and the foolish are going to experience storms in life? For both types of individuals, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat on or against that house. The term house is not referring to a structure, it's referring to our life. Our, our life is the house here. Is our life living according to the Word of God or is it living opposed to the Word of God? Because each sort of lifestyle is going to lead to an outcome when the storms come. And Jesus is promising right here, even if we're wise or foolish, if we're a child of his or not, storms of life are going to come. And I know there's some, and I don't know if they're here, but I know there's some people believe that once I come to Christ, once I get forgiveness, once I've been given eternal life and I can call myself a Christian, that all life is going to go smooth sailing. But that belief does not align with the Word of God. Let's just take Jesus, for example. He adhered perfectly to the Word of God, and people hated Him. People lied about Him. They killed Him eventually. If we were to turn to the book of Acts and see the first early Christians, we would see that they were martyred and persecuted. They were kicked out of towns. They were burned alive. Being a Christian is not a promise that life is going to be easy. Being a Christian is not a promise that it's going to be rainbows and lollipops. Jesus tells us right here, storms are going to come. Life is going to get hard. But the promise is we're not alone because God is for us, not against us. It is also a promise when life gets hard, if we're living according to the Word of God, here's the promise, we will survive. We will be standing in the end. It's not going to say anything that you all don't know already. This life is filled with the unthinkable. It's filled with confusion. It's filled with doubts. It's filled with pain. It's filled with the unknown. It's filled with loss. Jesus is telling us, in order to survive these times in life, in order to survive these storms, we can't just hear the Word of God. We can't just read the Word of God. We have to put the Word of God into practice. In other words, we have to live it. The imagery Jesus uses here concerning storms is one that his audience would have been well versed on. In this area, there were rivers and lakes and seas, and storms would come through. It was a very uh, agricultural type of environment, so they would get rain all the time, and things would rise, things would flood. The word beat 
can also be read as pounded and slammed. It's painful. It's the image that we see sometimes on the news when we watch hurricanes come across the coast. It's images of severe storms that come through our area that bring tornadoes. Jesus is telling us that all people are going to go through storms in life. All people are going to experience these things. The difference is the wise will not fall, but the foolish will have a great and mighty fall. That phrase, it fell and great was the fall of it. In other versions of Scripture can be read, and it collapsed with a great and mighty crash. Again, Jesus isn't speaking about a house. He's speaking about our life. And he's warning us here with his words that we have to apply his words not just on Sunday, but we also have to apply his words on Monday. We have to live by it. And if we don't, here's the warning. If we just check in and check out our church on Sunday, if we just open our Bible and read it and do nothing with it, Jesus' warning is right here, we're going to complete destruction and ruin. We'll be left trying to pick up the pieces. We'll be left with questions like, why God? God, how could you let this happen? We're all going to experience these moments in life, but Jesus has promised those who hear and do the word of God will be left standing. The conclusion of this section of Scripture is the response of the crowds beginning in verse 28 and 29. It says, They were astonished at his teaching. The word astonished can be read as they were amazed. They marveled. They were overwhelmed. And the reason was because verse 29, he was teaching as one who had real authority and not as their scribes. To speak of the scribes is to speak of the teachers of the law. These were the individuals who knew the religious laws of God. Scribes were experts when it comes to what we would call God's word. They would have been individuals who had had a doctorate of theology the problem with the scribes is they had no education when it comes to bibliology or Christology. The scribes knew the Word of God, but they didn't see the Word of God as the ultimate authority. A lot of times they saw themselves and their own little group. The scribes would teach the Word of God. They would read the Scriptures, and then they would turn to their traditions, or they would turn to past scribes to drive home their point. But Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't quote another writer. He doesn't quote another teacher. He doesn't quote another scribe. Jesus made statements like this. You have heard that it was said, and then he would follow it, but I say to you. See, Jesus spoke with greater authority than the religious elites. He spoke with greater authority than Moses, who was given a law, and the Bible says he was one of the greatest prophets to have ever lived. He spoke with greater authority than anything the crowds had ever heard or experienced in their life. And Jesus declared the word of God in authority of God to which all mankind will answer to. What's the point? Well, this is what's going to aid us in our life in living out the word of God. Jesus reigns above all. Jesus didn't come to deliver counsel. Just go back to Matthew 5 and read through chapter 7. He didn't come to deliver counsel. Jesus doesn't draw up a step-by-step -step process for life, saying, first, if we do this, and then if we do that, and then we do that, then everything will be just peachy. Jesus doesn't deliver a three-point sermon, which will make all of our worries and troubles disappear. Jesus does not say, if we do good things, then good things will happen to us. Jesus gives us truth. 
He gives us truth as God's only Son, as God in the flesh, and He does so in the full authority of God, our Creator. There's a warning here in these two verses in 28 of 29 that's going to play throughout the Gospel of Matthew and into the other Gospels. So we can be amazed, and we can be astonished, and we can marvel at Jesus and still fail to recognize His authority. In chapter 8 of Matthew, verse 1, it says, Great crowds followed him. But by the midpoint of chapter 8 of Matthew, there are some in the crowds who are beginning to give excuses about following him. By the end of chapter 9, Jesus makes the statement that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Well, if there are such great crowds, where do they all go? By chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus can only send out 12 disciples or apostles to go into the harvest At the end of chapter 13, Jesus is rejected in his hometown. In chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with loaves and fishes. He walks on water. But shortly after this, through the Gospel of John, we're told after one of Jesus' teachings, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In chapter 19, a man comes to Jesus and asks him about eternal life and how he can receive it. And when Jesus responds and instructs him and tells him the word of God, the man leaves. The reason I bring this up is it is a great thing to be astonished and to be in awe of God. It is an awesome thing. We see that throughout Scripture, but there has to be more. It is a great thing to know that Jesus has real authority, but there has to be more. As God's people, we are not only called to be astonished and to recognize His authority, but we're called to obey it. We're called to devotion. And if you look in the book of Acts, The first believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which had been all that Jesus had done in all the Old Testament, and they were devoted to one another. Devotion. Jesus Christ reigns above all things, which means he reigns over all things in our life. Jesus would say this devotion, this obedience, a little more plainly and honestly and straight to the point. Here's what Jesus says. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, he, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, isn't that the type of house we want to live in? Isn't that the type of house we want to have on the firm foundation of the rock? I'd like to invite Sarah to come up and play a song for us that I'd like for us all to sing. And some of you are like, is that a new song? No, it's not. Um, so I was studying this, this week for this morning. This song just kept coming to my mind over and over again. And some of you all know I grew up on the hymns, and that's just my generation. And so this song kept coming to my mind because I believe this hymn captures the essence of Jesus' teaching. And what i like us to do is to cry out with our heart because we know now storms are going to come, but we also know we have a solid rock to which we can stand on and we can build our life upon. So I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I would like for you to sing. The song is called The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking 
rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand his oath his oath is covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's stand for this last verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Stand his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Well, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. All God's people said, Amen. You can have a seat. Where we stand when the storms of life come depend on how we respond to Jesus' authority. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is calling us to examine our life right now in this moment and to ask ourselves a very hard question. Does my life reflect the Word of God and does it reflect Jesus Christ? Another truth to Jesus' conclusion here is that there are some who are living their life and they're heading to complete and total destruction. See, there's this underlining current that Jesus is building up that is pointing to the final judgment, which Jesus spoke of previously in verses 21 through 23. And there might be some here who believe that Jesus was a good teacher. He said a lot of good things, and he was a good man, and he did good things. And what you're trying to do is to imitate that sort of lifestyle and being a good person and doing good things. But Jesus revealed, when he's speaking of our foundation, there are going to be many who have lived a good life. They have done good things in their life. They've been a good person, but they missed out on the most important thing and what mattered. Knowing Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. If you're here and this is something you know you've yet to confess, your faith and trust in, then don't be a moros this morning. And God lays it out very simple. First, we admit to God that we are a sinner. If you don't know what that word sin means, if you've ever been to a basketball game and you've seen an air ball, it completely misses the mark. That's sin. We completely miss the mark of God's perfection and holiness. And so we admit to God, God, I am a sinner. And then we tell God, God, I believe, though, your son, Jesus Christ, your only son, died for my sins, and he rose again to show he has the power to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And then you confess to God, God, I need that. I need your forgiveness. I need your redemption. I need the gift of eternal life that only you can give. Perhaps... You're here, and you've yet to follow Jesus' example of being baptized. And you know in your heart that's something you need to do. Well, I've got good news for you. Next week, we're going to have the baptistry here. 
And so that's something you're like, well, I've already accepted Christ. I've already made that statement, but I've yet to follow his example of baptism. I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I believe I just need to be baptized. And I want to say this real quick. Baptism isn't what saves you. Okay? If baptism is what saved us, then the thief on the cross whom Jesus promised to be in eternal life, Jesus would have lied to him in that moment. We do baptism to show our devotion to Christ, that we're going to follow his example. And perhaps you're hearing God has called you to make Harvest Hill your church family, but you've yet to do that. Now that you've heard the words of Christ, Jesus asks you to either accept him, to be baptized, to be a member of the church. Will you do? Will you be a doer or just a hearer? So I want to lead us in prayer in this time. This is a time of response. We're not just hearers of the Word of God, but we're doers. I'm going to invite Nick to come and lead us. And I'm going to pray over us. Let us be wise and not foolish this morning. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us, Lord. Thank you that you care for us so much that you just you draw it out as clear as day. That if we're just here and we're just listening to you every Sunday and we're not applying anything, we're not changing. And Lord, we're living foolish lives that are heading to destruction. Because you love us so much, you don't want us to do that. And you give us this incredible warning. Father, you know everybody's heart here this morning. You know who have accepted you as their Lord and Savior. You know who are living for you. Lord, we all know we can do better. We all stumble. We all fall. We all sin. But thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much for your discipline, Lord. You, you tell us in your word, as our Father, you discipline us because you love us. We thank you so much for that, even when it's hard. But I pray in this moment that you be glorified and the hearts that have heard your word would respond to what you've laid on them to do. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.